This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. You're listening to the Happy as a Mother podcast. Today, we are welcoming Dr. Tanya Kotler to the show. Dr. Tanya is a clinical psychologist who has nearly 20 years experience in the field, and she has a special interest and has honed her expertise in the emotional bond between parent and child, and we call that attachment. Dr. Kotler writes a regular column for Psychology Today, has numerous published works, and today is here with us to talk about the science of attachment. In this episode today, you'll learn what attachment science is and not to confuse it with attachment style parenting that are two completely different things, what attunement is, understanding our own attachment tendencies, what it means to hold space for our children, and ways to repair when inevitably we feel that we've ruptured our attachment with our child or even our partner or other loved ones. This is a really meaty and soulful episode. I encourage you to carve out some quiet time for yourself to really tune in and take in the depth of this conversation with Dr. Kotler. Hi, Mamas, Erica here. Wanted to pop in and let you know that for a limited time only, Dr. Asherina Reem and I are offering our highly sought after workshops, Managing Mom Rage and Unpacking Resentment as a bundle. This bundle gives you access to both workshops and their workbooks for the lowest price ever, only $79. These workshops are hosted by myself and psyched mommy, Dr. Asherina Reem, and together we have over 20 years clinical experience. Here's what you can expect to learn between the two workshops. A clear definition of anger and what might hide beneath it. How to protect yourself outside of triggering situations. What to do in the heat of the moment when you feel anger creeping in. How to work through feelings of resentment towards your partner. How you and your partner can divide parental responsibilities. Tools to strengthen your communication skills and so much more. Best of all, you'll get unlimited access to these resources so you can watch at your own pace. This bundle is being offered for a limited time and will be closing soon. Make sure to go check it out, happyasamother.co slash bundle. That's happyasamother.co slash bundle. Welcome to the Happy as a Mother podcast, where we are dedicated to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host and registered psychotherapist, Erica Jossa. Let's work together in letting go of shame and guilt, accepting where we are in our journey, and moving towards becoming the women we want to be. We will hear from experts, learn practical tips, and listen in on honest conversations. Please note that the information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not replace the advice of your healthcare provider. Okay, let's dive in. Dr. Tanya, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you and I have been trying to coordinate our schedules in pandemic and momming and 
private practices and, you know, children and all the things. So I, I appreciate you prioritizing being here today. I appreciate my absolute pleasure. My pleasure. So we're getting into a really, I think a passionate topic for both of us. And I know that you've got lots of experience in this area. I'm curious to know a little bit about your personal story and how you're a clinical psychologist who specializes in like that reproductive mental health, infant mental health, and that attachment between mom and baby or parent and baby. So how did you come to specialize in this niche? I love to hear about people's experiences. Sure. You know, sometimes I think my story's boring. But I guess that's probably because we know our own story. It's our own story. We reflect reflect on it a lot. Mine started quite young. Um, I'm from Quebec. And in Quebec, you have a two-year post-high school, pre-university. It's called CEGEP or CEGEP. And so I went to CEGEP. So I guess it's equivalent to grade 12 and 13. And I had this amazing professor. I could still like see his face in my mind. And I had studied at that time, I guess it was called social sciences or something. But I was introduced at that time to, for me, what felt the first time this unconscious, this concept to the unconscious. And I really got very, very into this idea that all human beings ultimately need to feel known and seen and loved, but that depending on what our early experiences might be, and I don't think I put this all together at the time, but depending on what our early experiences might be, our behaviors may act differently, right? We might act as though that's not our ultimate human need. And so while our unconscious needs may need that, we may act or think or be differently. And so I applied for an undergrad at University of Toronto. I did that, got really more into the unconscious, started to read Freud on my own. And obviously my own early life experiences, like many of us probably played a role in my fascination with that parent-child attachment, which I started to understand a bit about forming this foundation or early life experiences, forming this foundation for how we feel known or understood. So I applied to grad school. But I applied to a grad school for my master's and PhD in New York because it's more psychoanalytic there. A lot of people don't know, mm-hmm. you know what's psychoanalysis, but it's really the study of the unconscious and mm-hmm. of our unconscious motivations and needs and behaviors. And it's rooted in Freud, who really believed that the early relationship is fundamental to development and to who we become. And so I sought that out and my master's and PhD thesis, as far as research went, were all based in the parent-child attachment relationship. So I looked at, at first for my master's at the parent-child bond and how it relates to death anxiety. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when I did my PhD thesis, it was more the parent-child attachment and the relationship to empathy and emotion regulation and really a capacity to connect to other people. All the while, while I'm kind of doing this research, which was not actually my interest, but you have to do it for a PhD program. Right, right. (laughs) I'm doing the clinical work. And at that time, I really focused at first, I'd say in my early masters, I focused on children. I worked a lot in inner city, in hospitals, children who had suffered abuse and neglect, And while I was doing that work, I'd work when I was fortunate, I'd work with the parent or the caregiver or the foster parent, whoever was available. And I started to become fascinated with the experience of the foster parent or the parent or the caregiver's own inner child, like their own experience, their own attachment, and how much that shaped their ability to bond with their child. Mm. And so 
I kind of shifted and became really interested in working with adults while I held on to my interest in working with children. I started to just juggle them both over 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I subsequently, you know, skip over about, you know, five, 10 years. I, when I graduated my PhD program, I did this parent infant psychotherapy program out of Columbia University, which really kind of, I think, brought everything to a head for me. Together. Pulled yeah. it together. I became fascinated in maternal mental health, got more experience, became a mother myself to one, two, three children, realized everybody before should have got their money back. Um, <laughs> I know. There is much just more a when you become a parent as a therapist that you're like, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> like, I just, I get it, right? Different totally. experience. Yeah, totally. So it all came to a head for me in kind of this beautiful culmination where I continued to work in maternal mental health, but with way more understanding of the journey to motherhood than I totally knew by the books and yeah. continued my fascination with infants. And I I really believe in this importance of working with both. I've never dropped that. And so I, I still really do that when I can. I work with a mother and her infants. I do parent-infant psychotherapy, even though I work in reproductive mental health. I will work yeah. with the mother, but I will connect to the baby that is inside her if she's pregnant, and otherwise the baby that's outside her. It's, it's sort of the foundation to my work. So fascinating. And I've heard of like infant mental health. And I know like South Bay Mommy and Me does a lot in like the zero to five year range and how maternal mental health and infant mental health can go hand in hand and things. One of the common themes and and in Mother Up and on the podcast lately that we've really been diving into is kind of, I guess, to put a name to it, reparenting and the concept of reparenting and this interesting thing that starts to happen when we become parents ourselves and we're pulled right back into those early childhood experiences of how we were parented. And there's a lot of questions that come up within the community about how do I do it differently? Or I have this way of being in relationships or being attached. And how do I set my child up for a different experience than that? And I think that's some of the crux of what we're going to get into today, understanding attachment, understanding how it forms. And here's a tidbit side note. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this on the podcast before. I don't think I have, but I used to be an attachment style blogger before I became a mom, I suppose. And so I had this blog called The Love Compass. It's got millions and millions of views. It's kind of silly. It was like a hobby of mine, just as I was like going through, I guess, my own healing journey and my own sort of safe relationship. I did all this attachment style blogging. And while we can talk about how categorizing isn't, uh, we're not like a through and through style and there's like lots to that. But I started my work sort of in a, a passion around attachment. All I could relate it to at the time before becoming a mom was in my relationship, right? And now it's taken a different turn as I am also momming three kids as well. So interesting. I love how like our own journeys bring us to these places. And um, I love that. I love that you had that past a little bit. It's still kind of hanging out online and I haven't done anything with it. And my (laughs) my world got turned upside down when I became a mom and I like, you know, it's just, it lives there, but whatever. People are going to Google it. I'm going to be like, I was in my undergrad, so please, you know, have some grace. But anyways, yeah, it's funny. And And that was also my first experience into like the online world and and building any kind of blog or anything online. So it was a learning experience. I was in my undergrad. So be kind if you do Google it. 
So when we say attachment, can we just sort of define that for those who don't have sort of the conceptual background of what that means? Yeah, I think that's really important. And, you know, just out of the gates, uh, for anyone who's listening, what Erica and I are probably going to be talking about is attachment, the science, not attachment, the parenting style. Yes, And that is such an important differentiation. I'm actually going to differentiate them, though, because I said that before, and some people go, yeah, 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 yeah. And they still have attachment parenting in their mind. So attachment parenting is developed by Dr. Sears. It's a style of parenting, and it's kind of centered around certain behaviors that the caregiver can do to elicit or to almost guarantee, so to speak, a secure attachment. And those behaviors are things like maintaining physical proximity, and I'll kind of get into why that's important and how I think this happens, but maintaining physical proximity, baby wearing, chest feeding, co-sleeping. Right. That's not attachment to science. Where I think it went awry, there's a lot of this, like, how did this happen? And how did they share the same words? I don't actually think it's such a, you know, haphazard mistake. I think how it went awry was that John Bowlby, the kind of foundational father of attachment, Mm -hmm. the science, science. his theory was based on the idea that, first of all, he was actually a psychoanalyst. So to that idea of my interest in psychoanalysis, he was a psychoanalyst and an ethologist. And so his psychoanalytic orientation was a part of him that said early relationships create this foundational, you know, setup or script for subsequent relationships. And his ethologist part or his interest in the animal kingdom told him that children would be hardwired in some way to seek proximity. Here's the word. Seek proximity to their caregivers for safety and security. Right. What he meant, if you really read his work and then 50, 60 years of theory and and research after it, was not only physical proximity, possibly physical, but also really the mental security, mental proximity, the idea of feeling felt, of feeling seen, of feeling known and feeling close, like my mind is in the mind of my caregiver. And through that, I feel safe because she knows me. So mm-hmm. what John Bowlby explained, and so they took that proximity and when it made it purely kind of like concrete, literal, yeah, yeah. literal <laughs> physical proximity. And what we do know is that first of all, for anyone listening, you can chest feed, you can co-sleep, you can baby wear, by no means am I knocking these behaviors, but that no singular behavior is responsible. If there's nothing else you remember after today, just the sentence matters. Yeah. No singular behavior is responsible for the attachment relationship that unfolds. Why? Mm-hmm. One, the attachment relationship that unfolds, unfolds over time. It's continuous. A consistent duration of time, like over a length of time. Correct. And yes. actually, we know that because, you know, if you're going to Google something later, we now have amazing research from what's called the still face experiments. You know, people speak about the strange situation a lot, which was Mary Ainsworth's research, who she focused on the work of John Bowlby and kind of was the first to research his theory. But there's been 50 years since then, more. And so now we have a lot of work on what's called the still face, which is when a mother is asked to go still face. She first interacts with her baby. You know, she smiles, baby smiles. She head turns, baby head turns. Baby's cooing, baby reaches. And some of this research they do with really young babies, three months, four months. There's even, I think, one, a few with weeks old. This is Edtronic's work and Beatrice Beebe. And then mom's asked, go stone cold, go flat. Yeah. 
no response, right? And what we see is just what John Bowlby suggested. Baby is hardwired with behaviors to elicit a response from the caregiver. So depending on age and their capacities, they grunt, they cry, they screech, they reach. And some people go, this is awful. How did this get by the IRB, the Research Approval Board? But it's actually not awful if you understand it, because then what happens is mother is told, return now, you know, come back to your normal self and engage with baby. And you see baby and they look at it millisecond by millisecond, like screen by screen by screen when they analyze the research. And what you see is that baby and mother find their way back to one another. They repair. And we can talk in a little bit about that kind of ultimate importance of rupture and repair. But what we understand from this research is kind of a few things. One, it takes two to tango. So John Bowlby didn't totally say this at the beginning, but he did suggest it. It just gets lost a lot in people's rereading of his work. So for example, he said a secure attachment bond requires that both, meaning mother and child, feel enjoyment in a relationship over time. And so he was suggesting two things in that sentence that people miss all the time. One, it takes two to tango. So babies hardwired with these behaviors to elicit a response from the caregiver. Two, a lot of the time, attachments understood as response in distress. So to elicit a response when in distress, that is 100% true. But there was also a whole piece of the theory that got dunked. It's also elicit a response in enjoyment. It's mutual enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Um, so it takes two to tango, but takes two to tango in all the moment-to-moment experiences, some of which are in distress and security yeah. in distress, but some of it is a sense of security in enjoyment, in bliss. Can we be together and enjoy this moment? The other thing we realized from a lot of research and the still face experiments and so on is that what it's really about is mentalization. The idea for the parent to hold what I was saying a little bit before, to hold the child's mind in mind, and they feel safe to explore because they are seen, because they are kind of understood, represented, so to speak, in the parent's mind. Mm. And that the carrier of experience, so to speak, what brings attachment forward, your, your security or insecurity, is really this representation that is formed. And the ability to reflect on it. So John Bowlby said there's working models. You go through these ongoing relationships. You form these working models. And these working models are kind of representations of how you feel in the relationship. I am lovable. I'm worthy of love. Another is trustworthy. And then Mary Ainsworth took that and actually categorized that into those famous attachment categories of secure or insecure, anxious or avoidant, and so on. Mm -hmm. What we've learned is A, it's not categorical. It's along a continuum. B, what is represented or stored is a coping skill. So let's say you took that still face experiment. Mom's gone offline. Where is she? And baby learns like, okay, I just got to handle this by myself. Um, And kind of turns away, looks outside. That we can consider an avoidant attachment style, a withdrawn, dismisses, I don't need you. It's a way of coping. And it will be along a continuum. Some people will develop that way of coping in response to someone being unresponsive, more Mm -hmm. or less. Or they develop more of a hypervigilant, anxious attachment way of coping, a hyperactivation of that attachment system. And so they'll be like, I'm here, I'm here. And they pull out all the bells and whistles and bag of tricks, like trying to get the attention of their caregiver. And they may carry that with them 
over time. Yeah. What we also, the last thing we learned was that we have a very romanticized view of attachment and that it really isn't about this kind of perfect attunement all the time and this caregiver being ongoingly, continuously sensitive and responding. It's actually really about, oh, sorry, constantly. It's actually really about consistency so Mm -hmm. that their availability to show up after a rupture, let's say, and repair it and have the child's mind in mind in order to repair. So, you know, they drop them off at daycare. It's not that they won't drop them off at daycare. It's not that they won't have that separation. It's not that that child might not cry, but having the child's mind, I know you're sad right now. I know it's hard to say goodbye. And maybe, and then mommy leaves. And when you come back, mommy always comes back and I'm here. And through these rupture repair moments, a child learns trust learns emotion regulation, learns a capacity for frustration tolerance, and so on. So, mm-hmm. you know, in a relatively lengthy answer, that's what attachment is. It's about mentalization. It's about a bond. It's about having the mind in mind. It's about attunement. It's about two to tango. And it's about rupture and repair. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of an interview that I did with um, Dr. Tina Payne Bryson, like co-author of Uh, like yes brain and no drama discipline and all of these things and we were talking about this idea that we have to be present always 24 7 you know and meet needs perfectly and and how that can almost become like we say helicopter parenting but can almost become like overly intrusive or overly stepping the boundaries because it's important and healthy for actually our, she laid it out, like it's important for our children to have other secure attachment figures outside of just us, right? Mm-hmm. And how um, them having a, like we've got our daycare provider. She's been with our family for five years. She's a home daycare provider. She's like an extension of our family and the kids love her. And there's another secure attachment in her and in that relationship, albeit different, from ours, but still important and still valid. So this idea of like the representation within the parent, I think about it like I have this theme song with my children and I don't know if you know the song, like ain't no mountain high enough. Do you know? Mm-hmm. It's like this. Now it's going to play through my head the whole rest of the, the whole time. We sing it pretty much every night before bed because mm-hmm. the idea being that nothing will keep me apart from you. So you can go to school, you can choose and go and you can explore the world and you can, you know, adventure and and live your life. But should you need me, nothing will keep us apart. And it's that, it is that, that is the crux. They think of like a secure, ongoing, being held up emotionally, psychologically supported type of attachment that gets like you said, misconstrued with this whole attachment parenting style, which is sort of being ever-present, being, you know, co-sleeping and, and doing all of these things in a more like present way, which there's nothing wrong with if that's your parenting values and that's how you want to, to do it. But I think that choosing to do that versus feeling like you have to keep up this standard to 100%. maintain this with your attachment, that's a different thing, Right. Totally. And it's, you know, for a lot of parents also, they'll also feel like they have to say certain things, you know, this beautiful moment with your children that you sing this song, ain't no mountain high enough, low enough, you you speak to them about it. And that's an amazing way that they can represent that in their mind. But we also represent things in our mind very much through experience over time, we create understandings from what happens. And that's that 
kind of gold in rupture and repair. Because what happens is the understanding that is built is that the child literally feels a negative emotion. You know, my parents, let's say we think of that still face experiment. Mom, where'd she go? She's flat right now. They feel a negative emotion. They feel scared. They feel unseen. They feel worried. And then she returns and they feel, oh, you're here. And they feel this positive emotion. And so they learn, A, that moods are in motion. B, that I can go from a negative emotion to a positive emotion with you. So what they learn is the importance of what resiliency really is. Resiliency is a capacity to feel able to tolerate adversity through a containing safe relationship. It's not, you know, what doesn't hurt you makes you tougher. It's not the experience of adversity itself. It's the ability to be held during something and have somebody holding your mind and going, I've got you. So when there's a repair that occurs after a rupture, a child feels held, seen, okay, you're always there, mental secure base. I have a colleague who discusses kind of this idea of therapy as a therapist, you know, when someone learns how to skate, uh, first, they're holding the wall. It is literally physical proximity, right? Like holding the wall, holding the wall. And eventually they learn to skate in the middle. Therapy in many ways is mothering the mother and helping the mother learn to skate in the middle. Parenting is helping your child skate in the middle. So initially, they mean literally need to be closer to you, to feel you physically and mentally and emotionally. But over time, the idea that you are in me, you are represented, you have my mind in your mind, ain't no mountain low enough, nothing can separate us, allows me to have that safety for exploration. Right. Yeah. In the still face experiment, if I'm remembering it correctly, we're going back like a decade now, the baby starts off like with happy coos trying to get mom's attention, right? And like smiling and giggling and then continues to up the ante as mom is non-responsive, right? Right. Well, there's hundreds. So the still face experiment isn't really a single one. It's a model like the strange situation that's now used um, and has been used for about a decade in in many different ways with different ages with children um, of different relationships. But yes, the model is a model where first they interact normally, then the mother is asked. And during the normal interaction, they are just ebb and flowing together as they normally do. So they kind of have their own individual song and dance and that's one of the things that's so cornerstone to an attachment no relationship is the same that's why it's a continuum not a category every relationship has its own individuality and so they interact you know maybe in this relationship you know my me and my two and a half or three-year-olds have this thing you know in goodnight gorilla if you know the book there's this page in goodnight gorilla this book Anybody who knows a book will laugh right now. I know they will. There's this page in Goodnight Gorilla. Literally, the book is like, Goodnight Gorilla, Goodnight Elephant. Like, there's not a lot of words. But there's a page where the woman, where the cartoon, you know, beautifully illustrated picture is like this. And my daughter finds that face since she was like five months old and could do the face. Hysterical. She's now three. And we have this thing. We've been doing it forever. You know, when we're in this moment of mutual enjoyment where she'll be like, and I'll go. And there's this idea of kind of, it's not equal matching we've learned in, in attunement. It's kind of this like one of you levels it up a little, levels it up a little more. One of you might lower it a little and you mutually regulate. The child regulates himself, the parent regulates so it doesn't become too much or overwhelming. And right. we learned that through the still face experiments. So for me and my child, if we were told to normally interact, we might've got into this 
thing between <laughs> us. But any of the experiments, what we realize is they normally interact. Then when mom goes still face, yeah. baby brings his toolkit. And so again, oh my God, that's so sad. No, look how infants are born with a temperament. They're born hardwired to seek responses and yeah. they will do it at different levels. They will have different ways of regulating and that's not a problem. So the child like who cries a ton at daycare yeah. versus a child who doesn't, that's not the issue. The issue is how they use their caregiver as a secure base, right? So some will try harder than others. That's temperament. Gotcha. Well, and I think that that plays into temperament. Uh, like our child's temperament and how they approach us. And, and we can talk about this because I have three different children that have three different temperaments that provoke different attachment responses out of me, each of them, because they're different humans. And when I'm picturing this still facing spirit, I'm, I'm thinking of one particular video that I watched and the baby, you know, tried to like hum and haw at mom and like get her to sort of like laugh mm. at first and was like, I don't know, babbling or went to like this really like positive response first. Mm. Like and this then, is a game. And then, yeah, and then was like, you know, got puzzled and perplexed when mom's facial expression didn't change and then continued to sort of like up the ante to get yeah, escalated in back. distress. Totally. Right. Totally. And, and, it's, and it's an interesting thing to think about when we're talking about attunement and connecting with our child's needs, because I know that one of the things, and you can correct me, I don't work in, in parent-infant attachment as much, but sometimes what we do is work with mom and model and teach how to attune and how to pick up on those cues, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, look, we're waiting until baby is or toddler is like screaming and tantruming, but I'm curious, what are the things that are happening before that, before they get to this point? Like, are there cues that we can be attuning to sooner and maybe intervene with and validate before we're in tantrum mode? And totally, I think that's such a great point. So for example, we can use parent-infant psychotherapy because you brought it up. Um, yeah. What we are doing in parent-infant psychotherapy, I consider it, um, and I've written about it and spoken about it as this really a uh, skill of mindfulness. We're teaching mom um, to be mindful in the present moment of what is happening with baby. But what she's being mindful about, the word attunement, is the child's mind, but also her own in order to understand her responses and baby's responses. Again, the two to tango. So for example, you have a mom who is chest feeding and she's sitting in the room with you and she starts to nurse and baby, you know, squirming everywhere and maybe even kind of swaths at her breasts at one point and then starts to cry. And she says to you, and you're talking already about her guilt in motherhood, she's not feeling good enough. And she says to you, you see, I can't even feed. And in parent-infant psychotherapy, your job would be like the super mentalizer and the super kind of mindfulnesser. And you, that's not a word, I just made it one. <laughs> and you, you would kind of reflect on the baby's mind with her. You'd say, what do you think just happened now? She'd go, I don't know, he doesn't, I told you, it won't feed. And I said, what, but what, what just happened? What do you think? Because I'm not enough, doesn't like me. She goes into her rejection self. Then you said, I wondered, you know, what's it looking at now? And let's say you notice, baby's actually looking at like the light, you know, and she looks at baby, she looks at the light, she goes, oh, I guess the light distracted him. He's like, yeah, I think so too. This light's really distracted. It's more interesting right now. And maybe you give a little bit of a psycho ed around development and why the light is so interesting to the baby right now. But then you say, I wonder why in your mind that felt like such a rejection. What, what, what is that? Where do, where do you feel that? And maybe it's a body and you bring her in her body. 
But this is a moment where Alicia Lieberman described this concept of uh, angels in the nursery and Selma Freiberg described this concept of ghosts in the nursery. And this is where a mother's ghost in her nursery may appear. She may say to you, well, you know, I always felt this might be the road into the rejection she felt as a child and never, like she couldn't do anything right. And so this whole idea of the there and then is brought into the here and now so she can reflect on her life, her past, because remember that reflective functioning is what allows us to change our attachment status. If we can reflect on it, no longer, quote unquote, overly affected by it. So if she can reflect on it with you, that's how she felt and begin to process that with you at the same time as seeing the difference in the here and now, my baby was interested in that light. And you may guide her to kind of say, oh, that light's so interesting. Maybe you teach her practically to put a dangling light behind her shoulder when she feeds baby so that baby stays more. And she has this moment experience of kind of trying to feed the way she does. And even if she doesn't, of understanding that this isn't because of her necessarily. Mm -hmm. And so she, A, yes, can learn to intervene differently, but B, she can represent the whole thing differently in her mind, which is what's ultimately so important. So many moms that I work with, and I'm sure you as well, Erica, feel this kind of ultimate responsibility for every moment that occurs. And any tantrum can be because of them or something they did. That can be because of their past. That could be because of current circumstance or their journey into motherhood or maybe a difficult journey where they felt their body didn't work the way they wanted it to. But that that could all come together in the moment of their parenting where they experience a moment, a rupture as because of them. And it's really important to help them kind of mentalize and become mindful of what's going on with them. Are you tense? Are you agitated? What's this bringing up for you? What might be going on in baby? And can we reflect on that to make a difference? Yeah. And this is work that I do with clients often from a little bit of a different perspective and different language in terms of how we're interpreting the event and what the story we're telling ourselves about this interaction, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I think about the idea of the perfect mom that we hold in our mind, right? Or the good mom that we want to be. And so when we act in a way that isn't in accordance with that, then this story we tell ourselves about how we're not good enough and what comes Mm -hmm. from that or why we even hold those expectations to begin with. It's so fascinating how stepping into parenthood brings up, I guess, like all of these unconscious things. So to backtrack, I talk about the idea of the concept of the perfect mom or, you know, what a good mom looks like as being this sort of subconscious filing system that we have, you know, we created this file in our brain as like a little young person as soon as we could understand, you know, language and and whatever. And in our hard drive somewhere is this file that says good mom or mom, this representation of mom. And and I'm sure coming from a psychodynamic background, you'll probably frame this more beautifully than I will. But (laughs) And all of our experiences over time get filed away into this folder of what it means to be a good mom. And throughout childhood and into our, you know, young adult years and even into our adjustment to parenting, All of this stuff comes forward sort of in terms of internal pressure and expectation of what we need to be and what we need to, you know, live as. But there's been no 
filtering system. There's been no like, what is junk mail? How do I organize this file? Does this belong here? Is this outdated? Is this, how did this get here? Who put this here? There's no cleanup or defrag or understanding put into place of, is this in a tune with our values? Was this because somebody else valued this and I internalized it and there's none of that. And so when we adjust into parenthood, we're kind of really chasing after this vague, you know, goal or idea of who and what we want to be. And anytime we feel like we're not hitting the mark, we feel like we're failing, right? But when I work with moms and I unpack this in session, we don't even have like a clear marker. Like we don't even know in our mind what that looks like because it's this vague sort of thing we're trying to live up to, if that makes sense. So I do a lot of values-based work with parents Mm -hmm. and with moms. Like, what are your values? What are the intentional things that we want to put in place in terms of you hitting the mark that you feel is what you want to do based on your values as a mom and learning to let go of these other internalized pieces that aren't in alignment with our values that we didn't consciously choose to put in that file folder to begin with. Now I'm sure there's a whole psychodynamic, you know. <laughs> no, well, I think it's, it's so great because this is like, this is how when we work, you know, when we work clinically, but even for anyone who's listening and trying to make sense of all this, they they really intersect quite well and quite beautifully because we may have a conscious awareness of our values, of the way we want to parent. You know, we may read Tina Bryson and Dan Siegel's power showing up and being like, yes, you know, S is an R, like I wanna do that. And then we don't, or then we can't, or something gets in the way every time we try, or we feel angry sometimes when our baby's crying uh, relentlessly and we don't understand why we can't. And even we do that kind of breathing thing and we hold ourselves and we fill our belly with air. And this isn't to not do these things. This is totally to do these things. We take this pause and, what's happening with me and we try to center ourselves, but we still can't. What's going on? And so this is where they intersect. Sometimes there is a need for a deep understanding or reflection, what's happening to me in these moments? Why am I getting so triggered? And for some people, that could be a current circumstance. So what forms the current relationship between you and your child is not only your family of origin or your attachment with your parents yeah, or your primary caregivers. You didn't have your lunch today. like Totally. So it's current break. circumstance. It's all that. I didn't sleep. Uh, my hormones, maybe I am struggling with postpartum depression. I'm a depressed mom. This isn't how I am as a mom, but I am experiencing tearfulness and I'm depleted and feeling quite hopeless or I'm anxious. I'm experiencing scary thoughts. So it's, of course, naming all these things that may be part of my current circumstance. It's a global pandemic and I'm really alone, right? right? It is my child. So what is my child's temperament? What is my child pulling or not pulling? How much is my child recognizing me? Because remember, the two to tango means mom needs to feel recognized too, not right. just baby. And so if, the, if you have a baby who is more difficult to regulate. And this is a temperament thing, not a naming labeling thing. And they are struggling kind of, they are basically cry in between any awake state in their early months that you're not going to feel very recognized. You're not going to feel very good enough. It feels so so one-sided. Yeah. Like you don't, my first one was a very, just, you know, just cried a lot. And as a new mom, I was like, I don't have the answers. <laughs> I don't and you know. Feel, I, do. And so, of course, it's understanding 
A, your current circumstance and how that's impacting and learning to have compassion for your, yourself around what you can and can't do. Be your child's temperament and realizing that the goal is not to fix, that this is partially them and what they bring to this world. And your goal is to be there like a sheltering oak tree, kind of tolerating whatever they bring, whatever they're feeling as best you can. But yeah. then C is why can't you maybe not tolerate? not in shame, in compassion. What is that inner child part of me? What did I not get? Maybe what am I needing? What happens to me when there's a lot of crying or noise around me? You know, maybe there was a lot of conflict in my home. Maybe yeah. I always felt responsible to fix my parents' relationship. And so now when there's crying by my baby, I feel responsible to fix that here, right? Mm -hmm. So this is how they all kind of tie together. What are my values? But then when it's going awry, why? What's my current circumstance? What's my baby's temperament that might be making it harder? And what's my own early life experience? Yeah, it makes so much sense. And tolerance skills are another big piece of the work that I do, right? And why, again, like you said, why is it that we're having a hard time? Is it that we have postpartum anxiety and we can't tolerate the crying? It's too overwhelming. Is mm -hmm. it that we're just like really tired today. We need to reevaluate our nests as we um, go through in my program. Mm -hmm. Like our, have we moved our body? Have we had time mm -hmm. to sleep? Like all of those. Mm -hmm. Or is this like touching on that we weren't allowed to have big emotions and big feelings in our home. Like you said, I like how you address that it, it can be either one of these things. And sometimes we might overlook into it and we just need to go and freaking sleep, you know, and that might totally. help. And other times totally. it might be more, more than that. Um, and how do you know, like, it's a great tip for anyone listening. Like, how do I know? How do I know if this is like hunger? I don't actually know. Well, A, it is, you know, a mindfulness practice of learning to be more present with your body, your mind, your emotions. Mm -hmm. What am I feeling in my body right now? What am I thinking? Learning to say that, to do that. What is my body doing? Have I eaten? Have I drank today? But it's also something continuously, almost in a pattern-like way. And sometimes therapy in this way is really where it becomes helpful. But for some people, it might be a friend or a partner, where you know, I consistently realize that this type of circumstance is hard for me. Right. Um, and then we may notice, okay, so if it's not just you're tired or hungry, or if it's not just, you know, you haven't slept, all of that is playing into it. It's a, you know, royal cluster F. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on <laughs> Um But there's also this, you know, in this kind of moment, in the middle of the night at 3 a.m., when my child's relentlessly crying, like notoriously that one is where I become ragey. Okay, what's happening there, right? Mm -hmm. Then we might need to examine it and maybe it does have deeper legs, not necessarily, but it might. One of the most relentless mental loads is being the juggler of medical appointments. Researching doctors, reading reviews, making phone calls to book appointments, it's a lot of stress when you're already juggling so much invisible labor. That's what makes ZocDoc great for moms. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of highly rated in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. ZocDoc has doctors of all specialties, including therapists, psychiatrists, and psychologists with verified patient reviews so you can make sure they check all your boxes. You can find mental health providers who offer in-person appointments, virtual consults, or both, whatever works for you. 
The typical wait time to see a mental health provider booked on ZocDoc is just four days. Sometimes you can even book same-day appointments. Make juggling appointments easier with ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com momwell and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated therapist, psychiatrist, or psychologist today. That's zocdoccom slash momwell. ZocDoc.com slash momwell. Want to get smarter about your health but feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction? We hear a lot about gut health, microbiomes, and other nutrition topics, but taking the time to research these is exhausting, and there's a lot of misinformation out there. The Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast makes it so much easier to get the information you need. With the help of world-leading scientists, the podcast gives you research-based information so you can make informed choices for yourself without pressure and guilt. People are loving Zoe Science and Nutrition. Listener Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others accessing quality information about their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Mealtime with kids can be stressful. But with Factors Delicious ready-to-eat meals, it can be a lot easier. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. No worrying about ingredients and nutrition, no prep, no mess, and no cooking while wrangling toddlers. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Factor can even be tailored to your schedule. Customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Take the stress out of meals with Factor. Head to factormeals.com slash momwell50 and use code momwell50 to get 50% off your first box. This is all so interesting. It makes me think about your your work. I know you do, from what I understand, work with Karen Kleiman and the idea of like holding space for mom. And and now as we're talking this through and we're talking about holding space and, and therapy being that having mom in our mind, that safe place for mom, right? Is that essentially like a bit of the model behind that? Um, you know, I love that you bring out Karen Kleiman and she's amazing um, and a totally esteemed colleague and mentor. I thought this way, felt this way, was this way before I found her and yeah. I found her and I was like, oh yeah, you, okay. That's You're my what person, this makes sense, yeah. right. So it, it has really psychodynamic or psychoanalytic legs. Um, the understanding of psychoanalytic psychotherapy or psychodynamic psychotherapy, you know, someone's going, what's the difference between this word she keeps using, psychoanalysis and CBT or DBT or these other treatments I've heard of. In psychoanalytic work, it's a lot about the relationship and it is a lot about creating what's considered a holding environment. Uh, right. That comes from Donald Winnicott, who is a psychoanalyst. And Donald Winnicott talks about the holding relationship that both a parent or a mother, he talked then, 
provides her child so that her child feels that in this environment, no matter what he does, the, the no mountain high or low enough, mother can tolerate and hold and be there for all of it became a use of an object to be used, so to speak, in safety, that the child felt, I can destroy you, I can be angry here, and you're still there, right? right. And that analytic therapy in that lens, someone like myself, who works kind of relationally, believes in a similar thing. The therapy is a space where you hold the mother's or the patient's emotions, a child, and I do play therapy, whatever they are, as destructive, right. as ugly, as nightmare as painful, and you oh tolerate God. and you bear witness to it so that they can process it. Karen Kleiman has beautifully taken all that and created a specific therapy for perinatal clients, yes. for mothers pregnant and postpartum, that really does have amazing legs in psychodynamic theory. Yeah, because when I think of holding space, like holding space for mom, my mind automatically goes to her and her programs because I feel like she's just like normalized some of that language or brought it more sort of mainstream, right? Totally. She's done a great, great job with that. And she kind of really is the holds the essence of that in such an amazing way. So if anyone's wondering yeah. what we're talking about, we're talking about a book called The Art of Holding that I think is really written for therapists. But Karen Kleiman really wrote a ton of books for mothers that many of listeners may know. Yeah, I think I have one talking about, um, oh my gosh, what's the name of it? The one for postpartum. Like I didn't, something like I didn't expect it to be this way. Oh, I wish I had it on my desk. I had just this isn't what I expected. This isn't what I expected. Um, yeah. yeah. And she's a great is, book on scary thoughts. She, yeah. she has a lot of, if you're looking for resources in this context, just because I'll forget looking for books, you know, a lot of what I'm talking about in terms of understanding your baby and parenting your child with your baby in mind, you know, parents are always like, what's the parenting book? Someone who's never mentioned and can be so helpful to parents is Brazelton. Do you know Brazelton? No. He was a pedi- He was a pediatrician in London and a psychoanalyst. And he was really quite amazing. Ed Tronic, who does a still face experiment, studied with Brazelton. Okay. My whole other, my whole world now. Um, yeah. <laughs> and Brazelton has a lot of very accessible books for parents that don't tend to be mainstream, don't tend to be discussed. They're called Touch Point, and they're just great. They're really, really mm. great. And this they have touch points like, for like, potty training and touch points for you know sibling rivalry. They're great books. When I think about expanding my training in the future, maybe when we're not in a pandemic though I am already signed up for more certificate programs right now, I really want to go down this infant mental health route because it's such an important aspect of mom's mental health too. Like they're so fluid and intermixed and it's been something that's piqued my interest for a really long time. You were describing this idea of holding space in the mountain being high or being low, being able to be there and handle all of it. Like you think about being this autonomous individual person, maybe within your marriage, having to consider another person, but really focusing on just trying to regulate your own independent self, right? Mm -hmm, And like mm -hmm. hold space for your partner as they go through things and whatever. But some people, even before parenthood, struggle with their own Mm self-regulation. And then you add into parenthood this idea of I have to regulate myself through your big emotions. And there was nothing that prepared me for that. And the work that goes into doing that is some of the most important I feel like we can do both for our own healing and for our child, but also like 
this under-recognized or under-spoken about responsibility in parenthood to consciously like hold space for that or, or focus on that and make it a priority, right? It's so hard. I think it's probably one of the underlying reasons for a lot of postpartum depression or at least guilt because it's very, very hard to sit in the muck and mess of another's emotions, let alone a little person who came from you potentially, um, or a little person who you feel so responsible for protecting from this big world. And they're having these big, big feelings and you are overwhelmed by them or maybe having your own big feelings at the time and struggling for reasons, current, past, whatever. And this is where rupture repair matters so much because yes, it is so important to show up to see, to soothe, all of that. What is more important, really more important, is kind of the power that exists in rupture, the opportunity that exists in rupture, the idea that I'm depressed right now, even for a depressed mom. And a depressed mom will say to me, you know, I'm messing up my kid. How am I not messing up my kid? You're here, I say to her. So you're already not messing up your kid. Because you're reflecting on your mind and you're reflecting on your mind. You're going back and you're repairing that moment that didn't feel good to you. And for your child, that's everything. For your child, that's creating this space that says we make mistakes. We're imperfect and we can come back together again after that. And so, yes, you want to shelter your child from the storm. You want to, in terms of what what do we do? What do we want to do with our children in an ideal world? We want to be present with their big feelings. We want to name what they're feeling. Big feelings being big, happy, joyful feelings or hard feelings, right? Either way, we want to be present and share in experience. Two to tango again. We want to both be together in it. When we cannot, when we are distracted, when we are stressed, when we are in the middle of, you know, this morning, I have a podcast this morning. I've got to prepare. Mom, mom, can you make me an egg? Mom, can you to school? <laughs> no, I have a podcast this morning. When we are unable, right, yeah. to fully be there the way we maybe sometimes do. I li- love walking my children to school. I love walking you to school today. I can't. Later, if they had big feelings about walking them and my not, I'm sorry. I know you were sad. Mommy had an important meeting that I had to be at and I couldn't walk you. It felt sad, didn't it? Mm-hmm. And then you might give them a way of coping. Why don't we play outside now together? Right. Mm-hmm. And so they have this experience of we have moments of mismatch. And mm-hmm. that's okay. mm-hmm. one of the things you're describing reminds me of something that I talk about often where when we have a, like you said, a, a rupture with our child, we can always go back to that moment or talk to them about it later. Often for us, it's at nighttime and we can sort of go back to the wound and stitch it up with a repair and heal it. But one of the things that just came to my mind for the first time as you were describing it is sometimes when we, whether we go to therapy or we process it through, we can actually go back in our own mind and like stitch up the wound for ourselves. Oh, exactly. That's basically exactly what I'm saying. Exactly. Like where, where we felt guilty about it, or we, that started this really, um, we're interpreting that with shame and guilt and being a bad mom, but we go back to that moment and we learn to stitch it up, put balm on it, let it heal. So it doesn't fester into Mm. this whole line of thinking that takes really strong hold. 
right? That's weaving in self-compassion, right? That's a self-compassion piece. And that's why I said, I think of it all as a one big mindfulness exercise. And that's why I am a huge mindfulness teacher and I run mindfulness workshops. And, you know, some people ask me, why is mindfulness weaved so much? Well, I think motherhood is basically one big mindfulness exercise. And so it's learning to be present with your child, with them and all their senses, but with compassion, that key piece of mindfulness is not only present-centered attention, yeah. but it's present-centered attention with compassion. So I was unable to do that because I had a meeting. I was able to unable to be there because I was tired. I'm unable over those three months because I was experiencing postpartum depression. Right, and, and that self-compassion can stitch up that sort of totally. gaping wound we feel. I work a lot with visuals. So sometimes when it it can just like sink in so deeply when we can say, okay, what is it I need? How do I have to close up this wound right now? You know, Mm. and self-compassion being the tool there for ourselves personally. And I feel like this is a whole episode. I'm going to write it down on, on how, when, when our Mm -hmm. inner critic is so present, how we lean into self-compassion will be its own episode in itself. But when it comes to repair with our children, Are there any sort of things that we can leave parents with as we think about wrapping up that can kind of send them off in the right direction in terms of repair? Sure. Like how, a how to repair book. Yeah. (laughs) So the funny thing about me and anybody who knows me knows that I am the anti of all things, 10 things, how to, but I will do it. <laughs> Listen, um, and this is the whole <laughs> practical application of that. No, I don't, but it is sort of the. <laughs> <laughs> and my joke about that is because all jokes aside, I believe so much in individuality and ultimately, you know, taking anything away today, it's about you and your child are in your own independent relationship and nobody knows your child better than you and nobody knows you better than you. And it is your relationship that's going to decide if you sleep train, if you breastfeed, if you anything, it's what's good for you and your child. And so that's going to apply to everything, including how do you and your specific child repair? Yes. But all that said, a general framework would be leaning into what happened there. It's Mm -hmm. there's a concept of the parent map, which I won't get into right now, but it's really a reflection on the moment that occurred on your mind, your child's mind, what happens there? What were you feeling thinking? What were they feeling thinking? And then in the repair, you put it to words. You observe and describe what they were feeling. And then you may observe and describe what you were. Um, Mommy was hungry and tired and you were calling in asking me to play. And you're like, mommy, 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 mommy. And then you start to cry and I missed how many times you asked me to play with you. I was so tired and hungry. My mind was a bit distracted mm-hmm. and I'm sorry. So the apology is necessary there. It's, it's showing your own mistakes, not over apologetic, but owning it, mm-hmm. uh, recognizing it. But it's also important to recognize their mind. What you're saying is your mind is different than my mind. I had this in my mind, you had this in your mind. Similar, you're trying to get a snowsuit on a child and they're kicking and they're screaming and they don't want to put their snowsuit on. And you say, you don't want to put your snowsuit on right now. We need to go to school. Mommy needs you to put your snowsuit on now. We're going yeah. to put your snowsuit on now. So we, it's not that we don't set a limit. We do set the limit, but it's a bit of a rupture because you're going against their mind right now. Right. So you recognize it. You recognize it. I know you're upset. I know you don't want your snowsuit on right now. We do need to put it on because we need to leave. And so I think of it as an A, B, and C. A is the affect, the emotion. 
What am I feeling? What are you feeling? Be the behavior. You're kicking and screaming, but we do need to go. So you set the limit. Yeah. C is the coping. What are we going to do about it? So why don't you step inside your snowsuit? Because maybe they're wanting some control. Why don't you step inside instead of mommy pulling it on for you? Right? Or the C is some playful, funny thing. Why don't you, I zip you around like a helicopter and get your snowsuit on. Right? So the C is this coping. When another situation where they're sad, why don't we hug? I know you're sad. I know I didn't play with you in that other scenario I used. I was distracted. I'm sorry. Let's have a hug. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're you're really knowing their mind, feeling their feelings, setting a limit if you have to in a scenario where that's relevant, and then offering a creative way of coping. That's your kind of ABC around. I love the shows. creative way of coping. I think that that is like I can so easily in routines fall into like I asked you to do it, you should do it. But the moment that I get creative and I'm like, okay, well. I'm going to, I'm a bum pincher in our house. And so it's like a race up the stairs before mommy gets their bum or like whatever. And they think it's funny because I'm chasing them or, or whatever I can to try to make it a game or more fun, which requires creativity. And some days I have it and other days I don't. And that's all part of the self-compassion, but, but I love that. And, and you had said like holding the limit and sorry, what was the first one again? The affect. So a affect is emotion. So it's holding in mind and reflecting upon, because remember that reflection is the key, reflecting on your mind, your emotions, and their mind and giving it to them in simple ways. I love the the noting piece that you brought to that, the noting of the vulnerability factors. Like I might say something like, there are three boys asking mommy for things all at the same time right now. Mommy's brain is like scrambled eggs. There's so many mommy, mommy, mummies, right? And I think that just noting and making some of those observations out loud is really powerful as well. So there are some of these sort of practical skills and and takeaways that maybe don't come naturally at first, but as we practice them more. And so when I say, no, I can't tend to this right now. It's not because I don't want to meet your need. It's because mommy's brain is scrambled with three little boys right now asking for all different things in all different directions. Totally. Totally. You're becoming the narrator. What you want to store in your mind is you want to observe and describe what occurred like a mindfulness exercise. You want to observe and describe with compassion what's occurring. And that's how you repair. And that's how you parent. Yeah. When you're oh my in gosh, I feel like this could go in so many directions. I'm going to like <laughs> push this and marinate on it and think because I would also love um, to do like a temperament-based podcast and sort of just understanding various temperaments. There's lots of different ways that this can go. So thank you for your time. I have an inkling that I will be asking you <laughs> to return at some point when we can make the stars align with our schedules. But where can people find your work? Where are you hanging out online? How can they connect with you? So first of all, thank you so much. It was a joy and privilege. It's always so fun when we talk. Um, You can find me on Instagram at Dr. Cutler. My website, tanyacutlerphd.com, where you can find everything about my workshops, my COVID. I have a COVID workbook for coping and some of my other books that may be coming out. And I would love to see or hear from anybody. Yeah, and we'll make sure to link all of that in the show notes as well so people can click through and find all of your resources and connect with you. So thank you again for taking the time today. Thanks, Erica. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. 
If you're looking for the resources and things that were discussed in today's show, you can find them in the show notes, which is linked in the episode description. Or you can head directly to happyasamother.co slash podcast and find all of the show notes there. If you're looking for support and connection with other moms, you can head over to facebook.com slash groups slash happy as a mother and join our Facebook community. This community is filled with women just like you and I who want to support and uplift one another through our postpartum journey. And until next episode, mama, I want you to know, keep showing up. You're doing a great job. Settling is not an option for Everything me. I desire is already mine. What if you can have it all? <laughs> because every day is for the girls. Hello, hello. Welcome to For the Girls podcast, hosted by Victoria Alario, For the Girls Who Want More. Listening to For the Girls will have you ready to raise the bar, stop settling for the bare minimum, and start believing you can have it all and step into the 2.0 version of you. You can catch a new episode of For the Girls every Monday across all podcast platforms. Until next time, girls.